Tonight the Dharma talk is about sila, or virtue. It's a challenging uh, talk in a way for me to give because a lot of the examples are examples of uh, the virtue of abstaining or refraining from conduct, behavior, words, um, and ways that we think that will lead to disharmony. So my intention is to, uh, to offer you something, to offer all of us something that we can be inspired by and we can bring out into the world and we can uh, live by in a way that brings us greater harmony in our hearts and leads to the deepest peace. Sila was spoken of by the Buddha within various frameworks. And the framework that I'm speaking of, Sila, or uh, virtue, tonight is the framework of the three trainings. The three trainings that lead to a liberated heart and mind. And these three trainings begin with Sila, begin with virtuous conduct. The second training is samadhi, that training that calms the mind, calms the heart. And the third training is panya, or wisdom, that wisdom that opens our minds and our hearts to that, those insights, those liberating insights that begin to help us live in alignment with the truth of how things are and that liberate us completely. So it's said that the starting point or the foundation of all these trainings is sila, is virtuous conduct. And in in one passage in the Samyutta Nikaya, I want to read this passage to you. A monk uh, approached the Buddha, and he, he said to the Buddha, let the blessed one teach me the Dhamma, in brief. And so the Blessed One or the Buddha replied in this way to this monk or this bhikkhu. He said, Well then, bhikkhu, purify the very starting point of wholesome states. And what is the very starting point of wholesome states? Virtue that is well purified and view that is straight. Then when your virtue is well purified and your view straight, based upon virtue, established upon virtue, you should then develop the four establishments of mindfulness. And then he goes on to talk about the, the four foundations of mindfulness. But what I wanted to point out there was the part about virtue as being the place where we establish where we've uh, set a foundation for our practice. And without this, we don't have a very strong foundation. The part about the view being straight means that we understand in an ever-deepening way the laws of cause and effect, that wholesome conduct, wholesome behavior produces wholesome results. Unwholesome behavior, conduct, produces 
unwholesome results. And we have to live with these unwholesome results and work with them over and over again in our lives as long as they're not purified. So the three areas of wholesome behavior or areas where we practice, we can practice sila, virtue, are in the area of our actions through the body, our speech through our words, and through our thinking in our mind. These are the three, three areas. So I'm going to speak about all of this in a very practical way. Um, I really don't have any flowery words or poems to give you, but just a way I can speak on it to, so that we can reflect on it and the importance of it in our lives. And I'd also like to really start from the place of... Um, just accepting our humanness, that the, that the Buddha realized that this is where we were starting from. And so the precepts or the ways of learning how to purify our speech, our behavior, our thinking, was presented to us, was offered to us as a way to make this steady foundation for our practice. And so starting from a place of accepting our humanness, accepting that we're born into this world with ways of being, with kind of um, currents, with uh, behaviors already practically in the mind stream that we have to see more clearly, learn how to refrain from acting them out because we see that they can cause great harm to ourselves and others. Great or little, whatever it is, it's still harm. So we start from this place of seeing ourselves with great compassion and seeing others with great compassion. Not in a way of um, putting ourselves or others down, but from a place of seeing that it's really hard it's really hard to, to do this, to purify our speech, to purify our behavior, our actions, to purify our thinking. This comes from, um, I'd like to read to you this passage from the Samyutta Nikaya, and uh, it's called Kamada's Lament. And it's about this... Uh, plaintive cry of this particular celestial being named Kamada. And um, I love where the Buddha, in a very steady way, replies and admonishes this uh, celestial being to try to develop within him or herself that nobility that can uh, go beyond. And so... It says here, So hard it is to do, Lord. It's so very hard to do. And the Buddha replies, But still they do what's hard to do, who steady themselves with virtue, for one pursuing homelessness. And that has a a deeper meaning than what we just know. For one pursuing homelessness, content arrives 
and with it joy. So hard it is to get, Lord, this content of which you speak. And the Buddha replies, but still they get what's hard to get, who delight in a tranquil mind. The mind of those both day and night delights in its development. So hard it is to tame, Lord, the mind of which you speak. But still they tame what's hard to tame, says the Buddha, who delight in senses at peace. Cutting through mortality's net, the nobles, Kamada, proceed. So hard it is to go, Lord, on this path that gets so rough. Still noble ones, Kamada, proceed on paths both rough and hard to take. Those who are less than noble fall on their heads when the path gets rough. (laughs) But for nobles, the path is smooth. Smooth out what is rough. I love how the Buddha is like that, just relentless in his reply and saying, it's hard, but we can still do it. It's hard, but we can still do it. And many, many times in my own practice, and I've seen with many of you and those who I've shared the Dharma with, no matter how hard it is, we still manage to pick ourselves up and begin again, to pick ourselves up and begin again. So it is said that sila is the purification of intention. It's the purification of intention. With every action, with every thought, with every uh, part of our speech, every word, there is, uh, of course, intention. And that intention is accompanied by either a wholesome state or an unwholesome state. And so when we watch closely, when we have this commitment to look very, very closely at those three behaviors in the world, we see that uh, what the intention is accompanying it. And when we see if the intention is unwholesome, we refrain from acting it out. We do our best to do that. And if the intention is accompanied by a wholesome state, and then we go forth and we, we carry out that action, that behavior. But mostly, sila is talked about in terms of restraint, in terms of some kind of renunciation, in terms of refraining from. It's a mindfulness training. You know, when we take the precepts, the precepts we take uh, during certain days, in the morning, these are not commandments. They're, uh, they're ways of training ourselves to watch our behavior closely because our behavior causes ourselves and others harm. And so when we take the first training, I undertake the training to refrain from harming any living being. I undertake the training. I undertake the training. I undertake the training to refrain from taking what is not given. I undertake the training from using my sexual energy to harm anyone directly or indirectly. When you carry that 
understanding out. I undertake the training from using speech that is untrue, divisive, useless, or harsh. I undertake the training from taking any intoxicants or drugs that will make the mind unclear. So all of these are a training, and we know that when we lose sight of that, we can begin again, we can start again. It's a commitment to harmony between ourselves and within ourselves. It's a commitment to clarity. I've taken uh, sila in this kind of training as one of the most beautiful forms of renunciation that I can do as a layperson. When we refrain or restrain ourselves from acting out what is unwholesome, what we know, what I know will lead to disharmony. Um, It's a very compassionate act for me of letting go. So first is seeing that what's happening in the mind stream, really understanding what's happening there, what's coming up, what's changing and make an effort to not not solidify it in any way, not identify with it in any way, to let it go, to take its natural course. And when I can let go, there's a great space there open up for wisdom to arise. And in that moment, I experience, and anybody, everybody would experience, a great strength. It's not just a strength of refraining, but it's a strength of seeing our own goodness, even just for that moment. Many times in, in practice or in daily life, you know, we see for ourselves how we might have a feeling of being um, blamed or being unjustly criticized or feeling uh, any kind of animosity from someone else, whether it's uh, true or not. And we have this tendency to act it out, to, um, you know, to react from that place. But what I've seen is that if I just wait, if I just wait, if I just, even the old thing of count to ten, you know, before you do anything, If I just wait, I save myself a lot of trouble. (laughs) I save myself the trouble of having to explain myself, you know, of having to go through the whole thing of, uh, you know, it's just more energy, you, more pebbles you have to drop in the mind stream again. All that energy that can otherwise go towards more quiet, a moment of sila, a moment of that kind of letting go and experiencing that kind of protection and strength of mind is truly a deep protection, is truly a deep protection for us. A long time ago when I first started out on this path, um, I really had a sense, even then at the very beginning, that when I saw people bowing, and I, I would just follow suit, uh, 
because that was the way things were done. I didn't know in the beginning what I was bowing for or to or about. Uh, but as I, as I grew into the practice and the practice grew in my heart, I began to have my own sense of, without anybody telling me, that what I was bowing to in my teachers, um, what I was honoring in them was their great commitment to sila, was their great commitment to refraining from acting out unwholesome states of mind. It's a palpable field when you're in the presence of someone like that. But we can only feel it when we ourselves are cooled out, are chilled out. It's a great renunciation. Um, in the path of purification, or the Vasudhimaga, I just looked this part up, sila, or uh, this mindfulness of uh, uh, being virtuous, those intentions that lead us to being virtuous and those intentions that lead us against that stream. In the path of purification, sila is characterized as composing oneself. It was interesting as composing oneself. And just to kind of in our in a moment when you feel you know like there's some way that you're going to act something out either in thought word or deed of just taking the time to composing oneself it's a very practical uh, suggestion one time i i was i was uh, with upandita and i was sitting in on an interview and um there was one yogi who came and did uh, her, um, her report to Upandita. And Upandita's response was a particular response that she was not happy with. And so she threw down her book in her booklet in the presence of Upandita, well, just right in front of him. It was really shocking. <laughs> She threw it down, and actually the book, um, the little notebook, fell down the stairs where another yogi was waiting, and I was sitting near the stairs and hit the yogi. So it was really quite shocking. And Upandita uh, observed this. And I could see, I don't know exactly what went on in his mind, of course, but I could see the look that go across his face and the, you know, sort of like the slight movement of his body to I don't know what, you know, just, but I just remember so clearly watching him, how he just had to compose himself. Just watching that is a model to me that has stayed with me and helped me in, in my own role as a spiritual friend to others. And so he remained sort of like just there, kind of like a rock in that place. And so the yogi took off and left. And then he asked me to speak with the yogi about, uh, about that composing herself. And so I remembered that when I read this. It's characterized as composing oneself. 
The function, it is said, of sila is twofold. The first function is to abstain from conduct that leads to disharmony, from abs- to abstain from conduct that leads to hurtfulness. So that's straightforward. And the second function is to achieve the quality of blamelessness, to achieve the quality of blamelessness. When our inner sense of, uh, when there's an inner sense of blamelessness, it really calms the mind down. We feel at ease with ourselves, at ease with the world. It's a very important foundation on which to build our practice, to have this sense of ease with ourselves and ease with the world. And also, when we can abstain from acting out, and we know that we can do this, we begin to rely on ourselves. We begin to trust ourselves. A lot of times, uh, when we're not trusting others, it's because we don't trust ourselves. It comes from this inability to really trust ourselves deeply. And we kind of project that not trusting out to others. It's hard to come to a place of trusting ourselves. It's taken me a long time. The first thing that we can do is to abstain from conduct that leads to disharmony. It doesn't take a rocket scientist, you know, to just abstaining. It calms the mind and heart. We can feel that trust in ourselves more when we do that. Two things come about uh, when we do this kind of restraining. It has this effect on the mind, uh, this kind of calming effect on the mind. And when we have this calming effect on the mind, when there is less agitation, less kind of mm, guilt, less regret, a feeling of blamelessness, the net effect is a more tranquil mind. And from that tranquil mind, we can see more clearly into the nature of things. So one is a foundation upon another is a foundation upon another. One time before I came to a retreat, I had this exchange with one of my daughters. Um, And uh, it was one of these angry exchanges, misunderstandings. And I said to her things that I really regretted saying. And, And it wasn't her, what she did, that was repeating and repeating and repeating in my mind and heart. But it was what I said that kept repeating just the words that I just let out without even thinking. And um, that hurt her. And the mind wouldn't settle down. It was very hard. It was very challenging. And finally I came to some forgiveness of myself, which is one of the best things we can do. Just to forgive myself and 
to allow myself to begin again. And then when there was that settled mind and heart, I could see more clearly into what was going on. But I couldn't see it with a settled mind and heart, with an unsettled mind and heart. It is said that when we can really get calm like this, when there's this sense of blamelessness, when we feel a lessening of agitation there, when we don't have to go over and over and over again what we did or what another person did and so forth and so on, this quality arises in the mind called straightness of mind. I think Steve has spoken about this. Ujjukita. It's called straightness of mind. And it's a quality of mind when we're no longer trying to justify ourselves, defend ourselves, rationalize ourselves within ourselves or in connection with anyone else. We just see very clearly, oh, that wasn't a good thing to do. It's just really clear that that was harmful to ourselves and others. And we can no longer deceive ourselves that way. There was um, this, this non-deception is so important in practice, this commitment to that kind of clarity, to that kind of truth, of seeing things really clearly. Once when I was at a retreat in Australia with Upandita, um, there were some group interviews. And in the group interviews, there were some reportings of how people were doing their practice. And it seemed a bit exaggerated, some of them, you know, sitting long, long hours and uh, um, always completely mindful with every breath. And um, so it was, it was easy to see that, you know, there was some deception going on. And, and so um, I, I wondered about that, you know. Um, wow, how is Upandita going to face this? In the next Dharma talk, he gave the whole Dharma talk about being really truthful and clear. Because how can you go for the truth if you're standing on a kind of dishonesty? And he just, he, he said, all those who would wish to make the commitment to truth, will you please come to my door tomorrow morning? And I would like you to let me know that uh, you weren't completely truthful and to ask for forgiveness. It was really very, very strong. And I, I really had to look at my own report. Was I truthful? Was I completely clear? Was I, you know, not, not in a way uh, that uh, blows somebody away, that kind of truthfulness, but the kind of truthfulness that just says what, how things are in your own mind, that, that uh, you know, doesn't exaggerate or doesn't uh, demean yourself or others either. So I looked carefully at that, and I felt, at least at that time, I I didn't need to go to the door and ask for forgiveness. (laughs) But from that time on, I was really, really careful about my reporting, about every single thing. I mean, 
I even reported until the last time I practiced with Upandita, I reported up to the minute how long I sat and how long I walked. Up to the minute I did. And how long I slept. You know, and uh, very, very, that kind of commitment to, to truthfulness. So it's the, the sila is the beginning of that ability to um, have the mind more settled so that we can see into it more clearly and we can't deceive ourselves anymore. When we see deeply into what's going on with the settled mind, we also less and less identify with what's going on. So there's a, a deeper kind of purification going on. But the first purification is this purification through sila, through purification of intention. It really makes us watch more closely what's really going on and speak about it in terms of seeing moment to moment what's happening. We see when we do this, when we watch closely that our habitual actions that tend to harm ourselves and others, we can be more mindful of, and they can actually turn into compassion for ourselves and others. There's this uh, really cute example that the Dalai Lama gives about um, a mosquito. And he's, and he's talking about the first precept, the precept to undertake the training to refrain from harming any living being. And so he said, when you really watch closely, when you're trained to watch closely your uh, habitual actions, and whether they're accompanied by wholesome or unwholesome uh, mind states, even when there's a mosquito on your arm, at first, you know, it's so habitual that the, the hand just goes out and boom, you just, you know, Aloha oi, as we call it in Hawaii. <laughs> you know, gone. So, <laughs> But then when you really, really watch carefully, you see that, oh, that feeling of just the hand going up. You can feel it. You can really feel the, it coming out, you know. And you, you really get a sense of that, that place inside you that habitually does that kind of harm, even if it's very, very small. And so you, you watch it more closely, and maybe instead of the hand going out, you, you blow, can blow the mosquito away. And then when you're really, really careful, and your that intention to watch closely even transforms into compassion, when the mosquito lands there, you're actually saying, may you have a nice dinner, you know. <laughs> Now, you can't do that with everything that's harming you, but how that can turn to compassion. How that can turn to compassion. Compassion is such a big part of the path. You know, if we don't have compassion, then we see somebody doing something in a way that's harming oneself or harming another, and we blame. And so that that's, that again, you know, it's, it's action, it's uh, 
that's, that's leading to more harm for ourselves and possibly harm for that other person and, and those around us make a big deal sometimes out of something so small. I've done that. Kind of blow things up and it's, it just ruffles the whole community. And I've had to learn how to have a lot of compassion for myself and just really accepting that I did that. You know, I was, uh, when I, when I um, spoke in a way that hurt someone else in the community, and then I was um, taken up for it, you know, I had to really see it and accept it and uh, apologize. And it was hard, but... Um, before I did that, I caused a big ruckus, defending myself, posturing, you know. So, I'm remembering a story now of one time, there was something that happened with Manindra that was a big, big uh, ruffle in the community. And I'm not protecting him in saying this, but uh, someone came to him, actually went to him with a lot of harsh words and, um, and blame. And Manindra had to stop this person and say, please, for your own sake, be careful of what you say, of how you say, for your own sake. Not because he didn't want to receive it, but just having compassion for what he knew was going to be up for the other person. So compassion for oneself, for another, when we see that. The second precept that we take uh, in these five precepts, the, called the Panchasila, the five ways of purifying one's intention, five ways of virtue. Uh, the second one is abstaining or refraining from taking what is not offered. What is not offered. And so that, that's how it is here with us. We, I think basically and very deeply we feel that that's happening here with all of us. And so we see this great sense of protection that we have because of that. We, we feel that uh, we can leave our things somewhere and nobody's going to take it. Um, we can go about freely. Imagine if, if there were even just one person in this community or any community that transgressed that precept, the whole community would be affected. The harmony of the community is so fragile. It, it, it just really lies in one person's uh, intention. So we pay attention, we pay very close attention to what we're doing. I, I just remember the little things of how that intention, that purification is shown and how that kind of goes out in, into the ethers here, into the vibrational uh, field here of just being, uh, going to bathe and, and seeing somebody's soap there. And just really paying attention and 
reaching out to use the soap because it's just there and then thinking, oh, this is not, this does not belong to me. Just really having that sense of protection, protection, protecting that person's property was a feeling of protection within myself. And it, it felt, it felt really good to touch into that purity in myself. And I feel that that's deeply here with all of us too. And so when, we, when we're able to do that, then we have an ability to actually develop, to cultivate a sense of contentment within ourselves, that we can be content with what we have. We don't, when we have that kind of feeling, we lessen the activity of greed, we lessen the activity of desire. And not only that, if we take it further, we cultivate, we can cultivate generosity. There's room to cultivate actually giving. That act that leads to the deepest kind of letting go. And so too with the third precept, the precept of uh, undertaking the training to refrain from using our sexual energy here it's refraining totally in a way of uh, brahmacharya or uh, abstinence. In the world, it, it more means refraining from using our energy in a harmful way uh, towards others directly or I think mostly our lesson in our society in, in kind of our level, our way of being and this group is really being careful that we're not even indirectly hurting someone. That kind of hurtfulness. And so the fourth, using our words in a way that is really stands on the truth, non-harmful way, truthful way, words that are not divisive, Steve is going to give a talk just on um, right speech, so I'm not going to go into it fully. But we know how powerful our words are. We, we see it, I mean, just when we have to speak, you know, we have to think about speaking when we give our report, and then when we speak, and then how it affects our mind stream even after just giving a simple report, how that affects the mind stream. Sometimes for me, hours would go by and I wouldn't feel that, you know, it was back to the same calm. I would review, did I say that right? Was I just right? Did I exaggerate? Did I demean anybody? Did I, you know, just really, just any kind of words, speaking itself. There, so there's that sailing, saying, not to say anything unless you can improve upon silence. <laughs> but this, this, um, I read this story in a in a book by a Jewish rabbi recently. The book was called "Words That Hurt, Words That Heal," and this was a powerful story about how our words can affect and how they go out, and to be careful. So the story goes about this um, man in, in Eastern Europe. 
and the man had gone about slandering the community's rabbi. And so one day, regretting it, he went to the rabbi and asked for forgiveness. And the rabbi said, of course, I'll forgive you, of course, and very readily forgave the man. And he said, then the man said, what should I do for penance to learn the lesson? What should I do? And so the rabbi said, go bring me a feather pillow. And so he went and got a feather pillow. And he brought it to the rabbi. And the rabbi gave him a sharp instrument. And he said, now cut the feather pillow. And so he tore it open. And he said, now take the feather pillow and go outside and just spread the feathers all over the community. And so he did that. So he came back to the rabbi and he said, I did that. Am I through with my penance now? And the rabbi said, no. Go out and collect every single feather. Bring it back to me. That is the power of our words. It's very, it's quite impossible, you know, to take back words that hurt. But we can be forgiven. We can begin anew. And so the the fifth precept, just going over them one by one, is to uh, undertake the training to refrain from using anything that will cloud the mind. Again, our commitment towards clarity. It's, It's just straightforward. It's just our commitment towards doing the best we can to seeing in our practice things truly as they are, as deeply as we can. It is said that um, generally virtuous conduct has non-remorse as its aim has non-remorse as its aim. And it has non-remorse as its benefit also. These are the five particular benefits of uh, virtue. And I'm using words that are a bit archaic, but you can, some of the words and the ways of putting it, but um, you can take it in and translated in your own way. Uh, Exactly as it says in, in the text, one who is virtuous comes into a large fortune. And how that fortune is manifested, it could be material fortune, it could be the fortune of experiencing one's own goodness, and thereby when one can experience one's own goodness, one is more likely to see the goodness in others. A fair name is spread. So one's one's name goes out into the community as being a virtuous person. One can enter any assembly without any fear. So in two ways, you know, you can enter an assembly without any fear, and at the same time, when you enter that assembly, you give the gift 
to all those present of fearlessness. One dies unconfused, and at the time of death, at the breakup of the body, one can reappear in a happy destiny. Those are the five benefits of virtue. It is said that the proximate cause of sila, the proximate cause for virtue virtue to arise, are these two factors uh, in Pali. Many of you know these Pali words, so I'll just say them. Hiri and otapa. Hiri means, in, in one way, you can look at it as meaning modesty. Modesty is that inner sense uh, we have what we, we we have this inner sense that this doesn't feel right, and you 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 kind of feel that you gather yourself in you compose yourself you because you feel something isn't right, and you know that what is there within you, if it's brought out, will cause harm or disharmony. So you you have this sense of modesty. You keep it in. Also, this uh, otapa, or conscience, it's a sense of really understanding what the communal standards are, the communal standards of harmony are. So you have a sense of um, what it will cause in the community. So those are the things we sort of reflect on you know, we, we actually, before an action, before we say a word, before we bring thought into being in any way, we can reflect in those ways, you know. How does it feel inside of me? How will it feel outside of me when this is brought forth? And when we do that, we have this great, deep, very deep sense of protection. It's not like we need some protection from some outer or greater being or from anyone else, but we have this protection of compassion and wisdom. Compassion, it's like um, compassion is our true mother and wisdom is our inner father. It's like this inner mother and father that shows us the way, compassion and wisdom. where we can deepen that calm. And in that calm place, we can see more deeply into the nature of things. And when that happens, when we see more deeply into the nature of things, we come to respect in in an even deeper way the laws of cause and effect. What brings good? What brings harm within myself and others? And that organically begins to blossom. We forgive ourselves. We forgive others. That organically begins to blossom. I'd like to end with this. um, Just a couple of sentences, but very powerful, from Padmasambhava. Although my view is as vast as the sky, still my conduct is as refined as white flour. 
it for a moment. with compassion for ourselves and others, which leads to the wisdom of seeing, of experiencing the truth of life in an ever-deepening way. May our commitment to virtuous conduct deepen and grow. For ourselves and for the benefit of all beings. <laughs>